five, give him a great big hand of praise. Come on. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see you on this wintry Wednesday night, and we're about to begin the book of Hebrews. I got to ask you, how many of you read a chapter ahead? Ooh, we got a lot of A pluses in here. How many of you meant to? Oh, we got some truth tellers in here. How many of you kind of got partway through it and, and quit? Well, okay, so see, once you get started, you can't put it down. It's a matter of getting started. But tonight, we're gonna, I'm going to try to do at least a chapter a week, uh, and I will do that. Maybe sometimes even a little bit more. But this is such deep stuff that it's hard to do. But tonight, we're for sure going to do chapter one. And so I want to, uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. And then we're going to just do basically an introduction to the book of Hebrews and then the first chapter. Father, thank you for the word of God tonight, that you have given us such a powerful word, moving on men by the Holy Spirit to write down what we're going to read tonight and study and soak in and grow by. And I pray that, Lord, tonight you will be mighty in in our midst, that your presence will fill this place that the great teacher of the church, the Holy Ghost of God, will open our eyes and open our ears and open our understanding so that, Lord, we get it tonight and we leave edified, exhorted, and comforted and strengthened and faith up. In the name of Jesus, would you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to my heart tonight. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say Hebrews. Amen. Now, when you read it, those of you that that, that read the first chapter, did it bless you? Amen. Did it bless you? Amen. All right. Now, let's just do a little bit of introduction. Let me just kind of bring you up to speed a little bit of the history of it. And um, then we'll dive right into the first, you know, the first three verses I could spend a month on. I'm not. But I could, because they're so loaded with incredible truth. But let's look now. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. This is very important to remember. And Oh, by the way, welcome to all of our streaming viewers. God bless you. Good to have you with us tonight. It's cold outside. It's wet outside. I'm glad we could reach you, even though you couldn't get here. So God bless you, and I pray the Holy Spirit's presence in your living room, wherever you happen to be, that God will bless you. Amen. It's very important for us to know right off the bat that Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians and to Jews who were considering leaving the Old Testament sacrificial system for the new covenant under Jesus Christ. Very important. So when you see what the book is called, Hebrews, all right, it's not hard to guess who it's written to. Amen? Jewish people. So... The recipients, the Jewish Christians, and those that were kind of getting close to it, were under intense persecution, and some were contemplating returning to Judaism, going back to Judaism, back to their old life, we could say. And the writer admonishes them not to turn away from their only hope of salvation. So that really, a lot of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is, is in that vein. It's about don't go back, don't turn back, don't slide back into the life, the religion, the old ways you had before. You have latched on to the the truth in Jesus, so 
because of persecution, don't consider going back to get out of the heat. The main message of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is superior in every way to the old covenant instituted by Moses. He is superior. As such, those who are following Jesus should not be tempted to return to their former Hebrew ways of worship, for these have been replaced and surpassed by Jesus Christ. He's better, 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 better. As a matter of fact, the key word, one word for this book of Hebrews is better. Can we say it together? Better. That's the key word of Hebrews. That's the gist of Hebrews, that Jesus and the new covenant are better than anything else available on the planet. Okay? And the word better in in the book is used 13 times. There's 13 chapters, interestingly, so 13 times. The author is anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. I think it was Paul. Matter of fact, I see so many things in it that are Pauline or sound like Paul, but I really think it was Paul. But you know what? God didn't let us know for a reason. All we need to know is God wrote it. Amen? God wrote it. So, some say Paul, some say Barnabas, some say Apollos wrote it. Uh, No, we don't know. But again, I think it was Paul. Now, it was written approximately 67 A.D., so it was penned before the catastrophic destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., which, folks, was terrible. It was horrible. The destruction of Jerusalem was a catastrophe that Jesus predicted. Jesus had said... Uh, You you see this temple, there's not going to be one stone left upon another um, that's not going to be torn down because you did not know the day of your visitation. And so um, this book was written about three years before that catastrophe. Its purpose is to present the Lord Jesus Christ as perfect and superior in comparison to anything Judaism and the Old Covenant had to offer. Now, just breaking it down real quickly in chapters 1 through chapter 10, around verse 18, the author repeatedly demonstrates Jesus Christ as being superior to the angels. Quote, let all the angels of God worship him, but not just preeminent over the angels, but preeminent over Moses. That was a big deal. To tell the Jewish people that Jesus was superior over Moses was almost like cussing because Moses was Moses, right? But the writer of Hebrews is letting us know in this book that Jesus is superior to the great man of God, Moses, who talked to God face to face. And he's also superior over the Old Testament priesthood, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm going to be talking about Melchizedek later because he's a really strange character in the Bible. He's only mentioned three times in the entire Word of God, and I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you about him. Now, the writer explains that the New Covenant is greater than the Old Covenant because Jesus was the perfect, permanent sacrifice rather than the Old Testament sacrifices. He was above the shedding of animal blood. The author also points out the power and the authority of the word of God. Let's read this together. This is one of my favorite verses. Are you ready? For the word of God is living and active 
and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. Man, the Word of God is so powerful. Amen? It's powerful. How many of you love the Word of God? Amen. Now, in chapters 10 through 13, the writer explains that faith is superior to the works required by the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, could never save because nobody could perfectly live it out. Amen? Nobody could live it out. So guess what? The Ten Commandments were not given to save us. They were given to show us the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. All right? Because as soon as we tried to live them out, we realized quickly, I can't live this out. It's like a barbell on the floor in a gym, and it's got a 1,000 pounds on it. And you go up to pick it up, and you can't begin to pick it up. You try, and you struggle, and you sweat. And let's just say somebody told you, if you don't pick it up, you're going to go to hell. So, oh, man, I better pick this up. It's got five weights on each side, 10 weights, 1,000 pounds. You say, no matter how hard I try, I can't pick it up. What am I going to do? I can't pick it up. And then a brute, a muscular, Hercules kind of guy comes into the gym, and he says, what you can't do, I'll do for you. And he picks it up, and he begins to do reps with it. And then he says, now, if you put your faith in me, God will attribute to you. He will say, you picked it up. He will attribute it to you. He, he will say, now, now you picked it up because he picked it up. You put your faith in him and you trust him to pick it up for you. So I am not saved by my works. I am saved by putting my faith in the only one who could ever pick it up. Amen. 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 And so Paul says, no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And then in Galatians, again, this is one of Paul's um, mantras. He says again, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law, not by picking up the weights because we can't do it. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law, because nobody obeyed the law. Amen? Nobody did it. For no one, he closes out this verse, 16 in Galatians 2, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Everybody say never. So anytime you try to be saved by your own good works, it's futile. You will never be made right with God by obeying the law. It's not going to happen. You can't do it. Don't try. Go to the one who picked it up for you. Amen. So the writer of Hebrews continuously points out the superiority of salvation by faith. He said, faith is the assurance of things you're hoping for, the conviction of things not seen. And, of course, we all know that chapter 11 is faith's hall of fame, where all the faithful individuals from the Old Testament are highlighted in this chapter Faith in Jesus Christ is our source of salvation because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
We even depend on him for our faith. Amen? Throughout the centuries, all are able to experience salvation through Christ because he's the same yesterday. He's the same today. And he's the same forever. If you're thankful that he picked up those commandments for you, give him a hand of praise tonight. Amen? Amen. Now, we're going to get into the book. That's just a real brief summary, highlighting it very briefly. But the writer begins with some really powerful Christology. Now, Christology is what you believe about Christ. And you know that I tell this congregation often, it matters what you believe about God. It matters a lot. Well, it matters everything, what you believe about Christ. What do you believe about Christ? You know, what do you believe about Jesus? Somebody listening by radio later, what do you, what do you believe about Jesus? Because your, your eternal soul hinges on what you believe about Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews, right off the bat, is going to tell us exactly who Jesus was and is. He says in verse 1, Hebrews chapter 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us, how everybody? By his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Wow. All throughout the Old Testament, when you read your Bible, you see God speaking to his people or, or even people that weren't his people in various and sundry ways. He spoke by dreams. We see that a lot. I've been reading about Joseph in my uh, Through the Bible in a Year devotional every morning. Here's Joseph. His, his whole spiritual journey began with a dream, several dreams. God spoke to him by a dream. He spoke audibly to Moses. Moses going through the wilderness. He looks and he sees that bush burning but not consumed, he draws near to it, and the voice of God spoke audibly out of that bush, that burning bush, and called him to the ministry. Uh, we see God speaking through visible signs, like the weather, famine, rain, blessings, and miracles. He spoke through the major and minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, all the way down to Malachi. He spoke. All through the Old Testament, God talked. Amen. But now, the writer of Hebrews says, in these last days, he has spoken exclusively and fully and completely and emphatically and finally through his son. Amen. Notice the writer claims to be already in the last days. The writer of Hebrews who wrote this before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, in 67 AD, he believed he was in the last days. He said, God has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that the last days began with the appearance of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and that kicked in what the Bible calls the last days. So where does that leave us? We're in the last of the last days. But all these centuries, it's been the last days. And so I believe the last days are the age of grace. The age of grace. When whosoever will, let him come. And, and, and whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is no respecter of persons. If you want Jesus, you can have Jesus. If you want salvation, you can have salvation. 
So thank God we're in the last of the last days. I believe that the Lord is very near at the very door. But all these 21 centuries, we've been in the last days. Now, note that the writer immediately points out what John also tells us in the first chapter of his gospel. Look what he tells us about Jesus. Here I'm reading John. All things were made through him, that is Jesus. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Wow. Now listen to the writer of Hebrews who says, through whom, that is Jesus, he, God, made the worlds. Through Jesus, God made the worlds. Amen. Jesus was the agent of creation. Everything we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, the universe and all of its glory and, and grandeur, the amazing creation that we see, things visible, things invisible, spirits, material things, molecules, atoms, the atomic structure, universes without end, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of those things flowed through the fingertips of Jesus Christ. Everybody say heavy. And then he says in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Well, that's a mouthful right there. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, let me unpack this. The word brightness, he said, by the brightness of his glory. It means the reflected splendor, and that's important because Jesus reflected God. God is invisible. The Bible says that God is a spirit. We can't see God with a natural eye, and no man can see him and live. God is a spirit. But now Jesus came to put a face on God. And so he's the reflection of the glory of God. That's what that word brightness means, the reflected splendor, the outbeaming is another interpretation of the Greek word, of the Father's glory. We see this outbeaming of God's glory on the Mount of Transfiguration where his appearance changed dramatically in their presence. Remember Jesus took the inner three, Peter, James, and John, and took them up onto the Mount. And when they got up there, suddenly Jesus began to transform in front of them. And the Bible says his appearance changed. Now, they're just looking at him. He's talking to them. And maybe he just kind of stretched out his arms. I don't know. But suddenly, his appearance changed dramatically in their presence. And his face shone with heavenly glory, clear and bright like the sun. And his clothing became as white as light. He was changed in front of them transformed in front of them. That's the amplified version there. And so here you have the Son of God. He's bright. He's shining forth. He is reflecting like a mirror, the glory of God. So what is heaven going to be like? Well, the Father in glory is, is, shines like the sun. We're told we won't even need the sun in heaven because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will also become the light that lights that place up. 
because he shines with the brightness of God. He is the, and this is one of the, the real points of the writer of Hebrews. He wants us to understand, as did Paul, that's why I think it's Pauline, but Paul did as well in Colossians and other places, that Jesus was not just a first century guy walking around saying cool things to people that were worth remembering and quoting. This nice uh, kind of hippie type with long hair and a beard and blue eyes and nothing what he really looked like. But no, this was God wrapped in human skin. And he was a perfect reflection of God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know the way God feels about children, look at Jesus. If you want to see what God thinks about women, look at Jesus. If you want to see what God, the way God looks at you, Look at Jesus. He looked at us and had compassion on us and wanted to shepherd us and lead us and guide us and help us. He wanted to deliver us and set us free and heal us. And that means that's what God wanted to do. He's the perfect. As a matter of fact, the next part of the verse says, he was also the express image of God's person. Jesus perfectly displayed the attributes of the invisible God. As the Nicene Creed proclaims, Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. When it says he's the express image, that comes from a Greek word used to describe an engraving tool that would carve out the exact likeness of something. You know, like a a whittle or a, a sculptor using an engraving tool, or somebody that works with leather, engraving something into the leather. It then, as time passed, the same Greek word was used to describe the image on a coin, like the image of Caesar on a coin, like we see George Washington on a dollar bill, all right? And that's the exact likeness, that's the likeness of George Washington. It was the likeness of Caesar on the coin. The Greek word here, that phrase, express image, is telling us Jesus was the exact likeness of God. That's why it's so much fun to read the red ink in your Bible. If you've got a red letter Bible, I mean, all the things that Jesus said, or just to study the Gospels and watch the way he dealt with people, taught people, freed people, healed people, encouraged people, forgave people. Watch him, follow him. Track him, because you're watching exactly the way God would do. Amen. Jesus told Philip, he said, if I've been with you for so long a time, Philip, and you don't even know me yet, nor recognize clearly who I am, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Oh, my. Isn't that powerful? Now, that's either spoken by a total egomaniac or somebody telling you the truth. Can you imagine me saying, hey, if, if you've watched me, you've watched God. You would be making a phone call on my behalf, right? So Jesus was either a megalomaniacal lunatic, or when he said something, as easily as he said this, it was true. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip, just watch me, and you'll be watching God in action. Now, next, we're told in this powerful verse that Jesus upholds 
all things by the word of his power. Man, this is just getting stronger with everything the writer is telling us. The word upholds means he's not only the creative word, but the sustaining providence of everything. He is, as one commentator says, he's the chain band of all things. He is also the guiding force of all things. He's the pilot and the steersman of everything. He's over it all. The universe is being held together by the word of his power. Paul wrote the, the very same thing in Colossians 1.17. He said, he himself, that's talking about Jesus, existed and is before all things. And in him, all things do what, everybody? All things, let's say it together. All things hold together, are held together. His is the controlling cohesive force of the universe. So let's walk with this a minute. The atomic structure is held together by the word of his power. The universe is held together by the word of his power. The planets turn on their axis at his permission. The entire universe and worlds without end are all upheld by the word of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a mighty God we serve. Clearly, folks, we are not talking here about some first century nice guy tiptoeing through the religious tulips, saying nice things, as I already spoke. But this is very God we're reading about. God the Son. And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand. Jesus was God the Son. God the Son. He's God. He's co-equal with God. He is, he is God the Son. Amen. So here we are in verse 3 just being knocked down with incredible truth about Jesus Christ. And it ends with this. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now here's where it gets wonderful. Because purged is katharismos. Katharismos, that's the Greek word. We get catharsis from that word. And it means to remove the guilt and to remove the punishment of sin. He purged our sin away. He didn't just cover it. He purged it away. The shed blood of Jesus Christ removed the guilt of our sin, the stain of our sin, the punishment that was due us for our sin. The blood of Jesus Christ purged it washed it all away. So not only are we forgiven, but there's no more stain. There's no more stain of condemnation. There's no more stain of guilt. There's no more stain of shame. There's no more stain. Everybody say no more stain. Come on. No more stain. The shed blood of Jesus removed the guilt of it, the stain of it, and thank God the punishment of it. Amen. God, now here's the way God, here's why God had to send his son. Why did God send his son to die on such a horrible cross of pain and shame? Why? Because God was an offended judge. He was like an offended judge. See, when you go in front of a judge in, in a worldly court, he's got a list of what you've done. And, and he's going to read it to you. And that's why you're there. Because you broke the law. And that judge knows why you're there. 
And when he looks at you, he knows this. They broke the law. I can't let that slide. There's no way I can let it slide. I can't let it slide that they broke the law. I can't just overlook that, blink at that. I can't do that. I've got to do something about the fact that they broke the law. So he's got to divvy out some kind of justice. That's what justice is all about. We walk away from a court trial and we say, Either either the victims got justice or the victims did not get justice. I watch a lot of ID. Matter of fact, I almost only watch the ID channel. And I see all the time murderers, thieves, terrible people who are in all kinds of trouble, break the law, really, really wrong somebody, murder somebody, or, or, or ruin their lives somehow. And there are times when after the trial, you know, the victim did not get justice. That was not just. Or you walk away going, well, at least that was justice. Now listen, God divvies out perfect justice. And we've all broken the law. We've all broken the law. James said, if you've broken one, you've broken them all. Well, where does that leave us? Everybody say, in trouble. Because we've all broken the law. If you break one, let's say you, you lie. When you lie, you've broken them all. Let's say you steal something. You steal something, you've broken them all. You committed adultery, you killed, you did all of them in God's eyes because when you break the law, God, the perfect judge, has to do something about it. So he sent his son to die on the cross in our stead. That when he shed his innocent blood, he said without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. God is either going to give... God had to give justice somewhere. He had to get his justice somehow. So when Jesus took your sins and mine on the cross, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was blamed for my sin, your sin. He took the rap for me. He took the rap for you. And he became guilty of our sin. And so right there on the cross, God executed judgment. And then he said, now, you have a choice. You can either go to my son who took the rat for you. He picked up the weights. And you can let his blood wash your sin away or you can face justice for your crimes. Either way, one of the two of those is what's going to go down. If you're covered in the blood of the lamb, when you go before, well, you won't go before the great white throne judgment because you're forgiven. But when you do meet your maker, it'll be this way. He'll see the blood. He doesn't see how much money you made. He doesn't see how good looking you are. He doesn't see how big your house was. He doesn't look at any of those things. He doesn't look at your pedigree. He doesn't look at how many good things you did for people. No, no, no. He wants to see one thing. Is the blood covering you or is the blood not covering you? If the blood is not covering you, then you will face justice for your crimes against God. But if his blood is covering you, You are liberated by the blood of Jesus Christ. Your sin is purged. Amen? And it says, when he had shed his blood and purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Isn't that beautiful? Having humbled himself as far down as anyone could ever humble themselves, very God became servants to us. Men became a servant to men. Very God in the person of Jesus Christ went all the way to the cross 
was beaten for us. By his stripes we were healed. He shed his blood. And he went all the way to the cross. He couldn't have gone further down. So God took him as high up as he could go when he exalted him. And it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul said in Philippians, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Amen? Amen. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Can we give him praise for that today? Amen. So the writer of Hebrews is making real sure that we understand who Jesus was and is. And folks, I tell you, this is the kind of thing that Christians all over the world need to really get way down, way down in the marrow of your spirit. You need to get this, that Jesus Christ was God in human form. All God, all man, all man, all God. And never sinned. Now, next, the writer is going to take us to the uh, subject of the angels. He's going to compare Jesus to the angels. And this is where we find our first better mention. Verse 4, having become so much, everybody say it with me, better. Well, that was five of you. Are you ready? Having become so much better than who? The angels. As he has by inheritance obtain a more excellent name than they. Now that includes cherubim, seraphim. That includes Michael, Gabriel. That includes every created spiritual being. The angels are the servants of God, but Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son. So his name is more excellent than theirs. The writer goes on to compare the two, so let's just read some of it. Starting in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Everybody say none. Right? He's drawing comparisons now. He's showing us the superiority of Jesus. To which angel did he ever say, you're my son? None. Today I have begotten you? None. And again, did he ever say to an angel, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son? Everybody say never. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God do what? So here we have, listen, you don't worship something or someone unless they are far, far above you. Jesus is so superior to the angels, they're called upon to worship him. And then the, the writer goes on. Of the angels, God says this. He makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So stop there a minute. He's saying, yeah, the angels are heavy stuff. They're his ministers. They are flames of fire. You You don't small talk with angels. Angels are serious, superior beings. But to the Son, verse 8, God says, your throne, O God. Now, what did he call Jesus right there? God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So 
The angels, yeah, they're a flame of fire. They're ministers. They're, they're heavy stuff. But they don't have a throne. They don't have a throne. And they don't wor- uh, rule the world with a, and the universe with a scepter of righteousness. The angels are fiery ministers of God, but the Son has an eternal throne. Then the writer talks about Jesus' character. He says, verse 9, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. More than the angels and more than any man of God on earth, Jesus has been anointed above all. No one is anointed like Jesus Christ. Can we give him praise today? Thank you, Lord. And he's going to continue the truth that Jesus was creator. You, Lord. In the beginning, lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you, Lord Jesus, remain. They will grow old like an old coat, but not you, Lord. The earth is going to get old, and is getting old, and winding down and wearing down, but not him. He's the same yesterday. He's the same today. And he's the same forever. Amen? And, and when the time has come for God to judge sinners, and that's complete, look what Jesus is going to do with this old world. Verse 12. Like a cloak, you will fold them, the worlds, up. Like a cloak. You're just going to fold them up. Peter said it's all going to dissolve, melt with a fervent heat. The Lord's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and this old, corrupted, sin-stained, devil-infested world is going to be folded up like an old coat by Jesus. Wow. But you, Lord Jesus, are the same, and your years will not fail. In other words, he's eternal, and thank God because he's eternal, he can give to us eternal life. Amen? The universe he made, he's also going to dissolve, And finally, one last comparison is made between Jesus and the angels. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Everybody say, none. He didn't say that to the angels. He said that only to the Son of God. So we're getting a real picture of Jesus here, aren't we? The mightiness of Jesus, the, the, the power of Jesus, the magnificence of Jesus, the godness of Jesus. Amen? The writer closes out with a statement about the purpose that angels do have in the lives of believers. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits? Talk about the angels sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Now that's the purpose that angels have in your life and mine. The word minister here is from a Greek word. It's it's diakonos or diakoneo from which we get deacon. And you know what it means? Servant. Now, we're being told something powerful here at church, that the angels are sent by God to serve the redeemed, to help the redeemed, to assist the redeemed. So we find in the Bible that angels play an incredible role in the lives of believers. And let me just go over just a a few of them in closing. Have you ever stopped to think that they have a deep interest in men? Because the Bible says there's joy in the presence of who? Who? The angels of God 
over what? One sinner repents. So the angels are watching when the gospel is preached. And when one sinner repents, there's a party in heaven. Well, y'all are acting like I'm telling you it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I said, there's a party in heaven when one sinner repents. Come on. There's a party in heaven when one sinner, they rejoice. So that tells us a lot that angels are watching gospel activity and proclamation all over the world. Somewhere right now, well, and God only knows how many different places, angels are rejoicing because people are being saved right now as we speak. So there is an endless 24-7 party going on in heaven with the angels over sinners that are constantly repenting and being saved. Amen. The Bible also says that angels are sent by God to defend God's children from evil attack from the enemy. It says in the Psalms, the angel of the Lord encamps round about them. The them is you, God's people them that fear him. And what do they do? They deliver them. Now, I think one of the shocks in heaven, one of the things that is going to delight us a lot when we get there is we will know, even as we have been known, John wrote, and here's one thing we're going to know, how many times angels saved our skin and we never even knew it. That close encounter you had with something really wicked and suddenly you were delivered, you were taken out. I believe right now, there's probably a testimony per person here where you can look back and say, I really strongly suspect angels were sent by God and set me free or delivered me or strengthened me or helped me because the Bible said, are they not all ministering spirits, pneumatos, that's uh, uh, spirit beings sent to minister to those who, whose names are in the book of life and who the blood of Jesus covers. All right? So they defend God's children from evil attack. They are also sent to help strengthen us in the hour of temptation. Remember in the wilderness where Jesus battled the devil, there appeared an angel from heaven strengthening him. And it's the same for us. Remember when Paul was in the ship at sea and it was being tossed by a terrible storm and Paul was fasting and he went down into the depths of the ship and he was praying and an angel of God appeared to him. And he said, it's okay, Paul, you're gonna make it. You're gonna make it to, 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 to the shore. You're gonna lose everything, but not one life is gonna be lost. You're gonna lose the ship, but not any lives. Guarantee you, Paul, because you must go before Caesar. So an angel was sent to strengthen him encourage him, pick his spirits up so that he walked out and encouraged the rest of the sailors on that ship. And it was just as the angel said to him. And over and over again, angels are sent. Who knows? Maybe an angel was sent into your life today and helped you, somehow strengthened you. Now, I, I want to say, you got to be careful here because there's a lot of people that get way too into angels, way too in. Uh, we're never to worship angels. We're never to personally, um, I don't believe it's scriptural to ask God to send one or that anybody can, let me put it this way. I don't believe it's scriptural that a believer ever command an angel. 
to do anything. I've heard people say, I commanded an angel to come. And I, and I winced and I said, no, you didn't. You didn't command an angel to do anything. Because an angel answers to one. His name is Jesus. To him they bow. He's the boss, applesauce. No one else. And, and so nobody commands an angel. I've also had trouble. I, I've heard people say, well, you know, me, I, I, there was an angel in my, in my bedroom when I went in there. And, and, and um, we just chatted. I don't believe that. Because angels don't just chat. They're going to bring a, a word from God if they say anything at all, and then it's over with. They're never to be taken casually or flippantly like we would another person. No, these are divine spiritual beings at the beck and call of Christ who do what he says. And when they come, brother, it's serious stuff. Amen? Amen. How many of you got something out of Hebrews tonight? Can we stand together? And let's thank Jesus, the mighty Jesus that we just read about. And next, next week we're going to look at how, what are we going to do? What will become of us if we neglect so great a salvation? Read ahead, Hebrews chapter 2. But that's it for chapter 1. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Father, thank you for your blessing. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us here tonight. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus is very God of very God. Thank you for the superiority of Jesus over angels, over the old covenant, over anything else on earth. He is superior, high and lifted up, exalted, promoted, no name higher than his, no personage greater than his. Praise you and we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Let's lift our hands and worship the mighty Jesus Christ. He is Lord. Yes, he is Lord. And he, he is Lord. He has risen. Sing it now. He has risen from the dead. From the dead. And, and he Come on, everybody, lift your voice. Every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now let's just once more sing your my Lord, lift it up to him. You're my Lord. Come on, just love on Jesus. Sing it to him now. And you're my Lord. You have risen from the dead. And you have risen from oh, yes, Lord. the dead. And you're my Lord. And mine is.
give him praise tonight. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, oh, yeah, don't forget now. Can we have an announcement up there about Pat Barrett? Do we have the, the how many of you are coming to the Pat, Pat Barrett concert? That's going to be good. Pat Barrett, February 7th. Oh, my. Just a couple of weeks. You can get a ticket out there at the Connection Point. It's going to be a blessed and a powerful night. But listen, he ministers. He worships. And I believe it will be well worth. The tickets aren't that much. They're, they're really not. Now, I know that's relative. But as tickets go, it's not a bad ticket. We don't get anything from it. It goes to him. But we're making the building available. Amen? So it's going to be a great concert. How many of you are going to bring somebody who needs Jesus? Let's make the angels rejoice Sunday. Amen? Let's give the angels cause to rejoice Sunday and bring somebody who needs Jesus. Amen? All right. Let's count to three, and we're going to shout the one word that describes Hebrews. What is it? All right. Ready? One, two, three. Amen. Have a good night. Drive carefully on the way home.